Good morning, church. This morning we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we have both access and one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. I want you to think of some either people or groups of people that have tremendous animosity toward each other. So you've got like the Montagues and the Capulets. You've got the Hatfields and the McCoys. You've got the Jets and the Sharks. You've got the Bloods and the Crips. You've got Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr, sir. And Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. Where are my Apple people? Android people. We come to this text of Scripture, and I lay this background because if you don't know in the days of Jesus and the apostles, the, the animosity between the Jews and the Gentiles made some of these other animosities pale in comparison. I mean, there's literally in rabbinic writings this belief, a false belief, a, a hideous belief, a horrible belief. But some of the rabbis would say God created Gentiles simply to stoke the fires of hell. That's a lot of hatred. There's also tremendous animosity in our culture today. And as we come to an election Tuesday, I probably don't have to tell you that. That everywhere we look, racially, politically, social and cultural issues, we are not only divided and polarized as a nation, but there's actually a tremendous amount of acrimony and hostility where people think those other people who believe differently than me are not only different, maybe uneducated, maybe just not as progressive as someone else, but they actually think those people are the enemy. Those people believe what they believe and think what they think because they are evil and they need to be destroyed. So the text we come to, as I said, is very timely and relevant because God does not want us giving into a cynicism where we're just like, well, I guess everything's just polarized and there's just animosity and hostility and 
you know, then we live and then we die and that's all there is. We need to remember the power and the peace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to remind ourselves maybe daily that God is in the business of reconciling people to himself and also reconciling people to one another who are natural enemies but actually become more than friends in the gospel as we'll see at the conclusion of this text. So your one big idea this morning is that the cross, the cross of Jesus puts an end to the hostility with God and with one another and makes a whole new humanity in Christ. And that's kind of what we've been pushing toward all along. This Ephesians theme is a new humanity in Christ. This idea that God is not simply saving individuals to have a right relationship with him and go to heaven when you die. But right here and now, in the middle of Denver, God is building a new humanity. Something that is categorically different than whatever has existed before it. And much like last week, if you were here, Paul kind of goes chronologically, but also theologically through this text. And here are the three things we're going to see. He begins with those who are without Christ, verses 11 and 12. Then describes what happens through Christ, verses 13 through 18. And then concludes, this is who we are in Christ, verses 19 through 22. So again, kind of backing up. Actually, let me back up to, to where we started in week one, where we laid a little groundwork about this city of Ephesus and who are these Ephesians, why is Paul writing to them and all that. And I'll just remind you, this city of Ephesus was probably the third or fourth largest city in the entire Roman Empire at the time that Paul writes this letter. Hundreds of thousands of people. And it was the, the capital of the province of Asia, this major crossroads of trade. And we know from the book of Acts, there was a synagogue there, but we know from other historic writings, the, the gathering of Jews that were there in that city would have been very small. So most of the people that Paul's writing to are Gentiles, Greeks, who have been converted from paganism and polytheism to follow Jesus. Like they believe the gospel, but kind of reading it between the lines in the content that shows up in this letter, they're struggling with their identity. They're like, I, I don't, I believe in Jesus. I believe he saved me from my sins, but I don't know who I am like in Christ. And furthermore, at the very same time as they struggle with this identity crisis of who am I in the middle of this big pagan polytheistic city trying to do life with Jesus, now I'm also having issues trying to integrate into one church, one fellowship with Jewish believers who don't see things the way I did or do and have animosity. So the first verse here, which is verse 11, where we started reading, Paul's going to back them up to the very beginning chronologically and say, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, that is in, in the earthly flesh before Jesus saved you. And then he's going to go on to remind them of some things that were true before they met Jesus, before they became Christians. And he's saying this is true of them. I want to say these things are also true of us. Most of us, maybe all of us, are Gentiles, that is, non-Jews. And so the things that he says here to them are also true of us. So we can say we, we, number one, we were separated from Christ. And the idea here is Christ is the word Messiah. 
And all throughout the Old Testament, the Jews looked to this Messiah, literally an anointed one who would come from God and save their people and deliver them and set up this messianic age. But we also know from Scripture, this is a Jewish Messiah. And Gentiles are outsiders to that. So that's what he means. You're separated from the Messiah. This Messiah doesn't owe you anything. Number two, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And commonwealth is just a, it's a fancy word for citizenship. So what he's saying is Israel was God's covenant people. And they had a nation. They had a kingdom. And they had rulers for different periods of time. And he says, as Gentiles, you were excluded from that citizenship. You were outsiders to that citizenship. So whatever privileges and responsibilities and rights that someone had as a member of the Jewish nation or Israel, he says that you were alienated from that. You were set apart from that. Number three, he says, you were strangers to the covenants of promise. And you may know from reading the Old Testament, there's a series of covenants, which is a word for like a promise or a very serious commitment. But those are given to Jewish patriarchs like Abraham and Moses and David. And their promises for the Jewish people of like, this is what God will do for you, especially as you walk in obedience to him. And so the Gentiles could look at that and say, well, I, I know of these promises made to them, but what about me? It'd be a little bit like being adopted into a family. And as you're sitting around the dinner table, your parents are making promises to their biological children right in front of you. And they're like, you're going to get the inheritance and this is how I'm going to bless you. You, you know, because you're adopted, you're going to have to provide for yourself. And this is how they felt. Like, well, it's great that you're making promises, but you're making promises to someone else and you're doing it in a way that I can, I, I can see, I can hear what your promises are, but I'm a stranger to that promise. Fourthly, he says, we were without hope. The hope that the Jews had was this confident expectation that this Messiah figure would come and whatever situation in life they were dealing with, whatever conflict, the Messiah would break their bondage. He would liberate them, save them, set up his messianic kingdom, and they would rule and reign with him. And they're like, we, we have this hope. We don't know when. We don't know how. We, we don't know the exact mechanics of it, but we do have this future hope that the Messiah is coming for us, Israel, to set up his kingdom and again, Gentiles were outsiders to this hope. It was a hope for the Jewish people. And finally, he says, before Christ, you were without God, which is kind of an interesting thing to say to people who are coming out of polytheism. I mean, in one sense, they could say, well, we had more gods than you did, which is true. But because they were not real gods, those gods that they worshipped, like Artemis or Diana, had no real existence. Therefore, they had no real power to do anything. They had no real grace, no real love. They could worship them, but they could not be loved back. And so he says, Yahweh is the true God, and you don't know him. You don't have a relationship with him. So you're even without God. And I'll just summarize this first point of what Paul's going back to. He's like, I want you to remember who you were and in what kind of condition you were when Christ called you to come and follow him. He's saying there was a time in your life that was characterized by separation from God and distance from the covenant people of God and those promises. Furthermore, those people that got the promises hate you and are constantly throwing their privilege in your face, which the Jews were doing. 
Like, we have God. We have the covenants. We have the patriarchs. We have the promises. You have none of that. And so you can see how, like, you get saved. You're like, I believe in Jesus. Okay, now I'm supposed to do life in community with people who think this way, or at least thought this way. And you know animosity is hard to let go of. So some of these are lingering feelings of the Jews feeling superior to the Gentile believers of like, why are you here now as the covenant people of God? Gentiles are not the covenant people of God. Well, now in Christ they are. What would you feel if these people are looking down on you and, and thinking like, what do you, why do you belong here? I think you could feel a, a dismissiveness of like, well, I don't, I don't care what you think or I don't care about you. You could feel frustration. You could feel anger. You could feel animosity or even hatred back toward them. Of like, well, you hate me, I hate you too. So there we go. And I want you to think about this. How many of you would feel maybe something like this? Wait, Jesus saves me to be a part of that community? Like, why would I want to be a part of them? And I'll just pause right there and say... As Jesus is still in the business of reconciling individuals to himself today, 2022 in Denver, Colorado. Have we as believers, has the church somehow created a situation that's similar where people may think, I hear this hope of Jesus, this forgiveness of sins, this, this clearance of guilt and shame, and just this amazing freedom from addiction and bondage to sin and death and punishment. And that all sounds really good. But as I look at that group of people, why would I want to be a part of them? And since salvation is not just individual, one-on-one, me and God, but is this corporate thing forming a new humanity, you know, I think the church has a calling here to not be like the Jews in the early days of the church where there was all this separation and distance and estrangement. And by the way, the fact that the church was planted initially in this kind of atmosphere just shows you what a miracle of the existence of the church. Like, how does the church exist at all? It's a miracle of God's grace that he could take people who had so much hatred toward each other and bring them together in one body, as we'll see at the end here, and make them one. All right, how does this work? How does this work? It only works through Christ, and that's point two, through Christ. Okay, and you look at these words as he transitions now in verse 13. He says, but now. So he's like, remember where you were, how you were, but now. And this kind of parallels verse four that we saw last week where he says, but God. You were in dire straits. You could not fix yourselves. You were slaves to sin, but God did something for you that you can't do for yourself. Here he says, but now through Christ. And I want you to look at what God does to resolve this separation and distance and also how he does it. Okay. What? So in other words, what did Jesus do for those who were distant and estranged? What did Jesus do for you and me as predominantly Gentiles who are called into relationship. Look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. And the key here is that where there was animosity, Jesus made peace. 
And you see peace is a theme of this text because he says peace, 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 peace four times over and over. And he's showing you Jesus made peace in two key ways, two key words, proximity and unity. The idea of proximity is he says those who are far off, he brought near. So there's no longer that distance. There's no longer the, oh, my family's here and you, you can listen in from way over there. No, there's a proximity and there's a unity because he says what was once two is now one. And not just one as in 50-50, but an entirely new one. I love what one commentator said. If the plight was estrangement and distance, the solution is nearness and belonging. And this is the way Jesus works. It's not just, again, well, you get, I forgive your sins, you can die and go to heaven. But the salvation that Jesus is inviting you into, the peace with God and with one another that Jesus is inviting you into is this nearness and belonging. And notice Jesus doesn't merely give us peace. Peace is not a commodity. It's not like I had, I had four peace, uh, but I needed 10 to really feel at peace, so he gave me six more peace. No, he says here, verse 14, Jesus is our peace. And verse 15, Jesus made peace. That is, where there was enmity, Jesus did absolutely everything necessary to reconcile us to God and bring us near to the Father. Where there was animosity between people and people groups, Jesus did everything necessary to bring us near and reconcile us to one another. So that's the what. He's, he's reconciling us. He's making peace through proximity, through unity. Now, how? How did Jesus do that? And uh, this is important. I'm going to distinguish here between the means of what Jesus did and the methods. And there's an important distinction because, you know, you go back to science and there's means and methods. And maybe some of you studied this. A means of something is like the agent or the instrument that accomplishes something. The method is like the procedure or the process that you had to go through. And Paul incredibly shows us both, beginning with the means or the the agent that accomplishes this. Look at verse 13 again. He says, you who were far off have been brought near. How? Or by what means? He says, by the blood of Christ, you've been brought near. Verse 14, how has the hostility been removed? He says, in his flesh or through his flesh. Verse 16, how have we been reconciled to God through his cross? And I want you to understand that when he says the blood, the flesh or the body and the cross, he's not saying three different things. He's saying one thing. That is, we are reconciled to God and to one another through the sacrificial atoning death of Jesus on the cross. Now, here's the, here's the picture that Paul wants them to kind of see and understand. As he's talking about, wait, we've been, we've been reconciled through the blood of Jesus? Well, they would, back in those days, they would kind of all understand this because they worshiped gods. They made sacrifices to gods. But even the Hebrew God, even the true God, Yahweh, you know, this is pictured in the very geography of the temple or the tabernacle before the temple that God's presence incredibly dwelt in the midst of his people. Okay, from the time he's like rescuing them from Egypt, and they're going through the Exodus, and he's leading them across the Red Sea and into the wilderness, and then eventually into the Promised Land. Remember, the the presence and the glory of God is going with his people and dwelling in the midst of his people. And it's like, well, what makes us different than any other people group in the world is the presence of the true God. But 
unholy, unrighteous, sinful people can't live in the presence of a holy God without just being like incinerated. And so God created this place. You know, in, inside the temple is this most holy place or the holy of holies. And God says, I can put my presence there behind these walls and behind this veil. And you can't just waltz into my presence even though I'm with you. And when I said that even the design of the temple pictures how we as sinners can approach a holy God, I want you to picture outside this temple, there's this courtyard. And in that courtyard, are these two major features of this basin of water for washing. And then this altar where living sacrifices were made to God. And so the people are meant to understand the only way I can come to a holy God and have a relationship with him that's right and that's restored, that's intimate, is my sin has to be cleansed. I have to be washed. And there has to be a sacrifice made for my sin because my sin deserves death. So year after year, for more than 1,400 years, the Jews are bringing their lambs and their goats and their bulls to the tabernacle or the temple, and they would actually lay their hand on the head of this animal. And it was this symbolic transference of guilt. Like, I know I've trespassed. I transfer it to this creature who now as an innocent sacrifice is dying for my sin. So the Jews get that. But where does that leave the Gentiles? What if they're like, well, I want to approach a holy God. And again, not on my terms, but on his terms. But how do I do that? Well, sorry, this sacrificial system is for the Jews. And they can't engage in the sacrifices. They can't do what the Jewish people were doing. So the day comes where Jesus essentially says, I'm going to go down there as the spotless lamb of God. And I'm going to sacrifice my life for all of them. I'm going to sacrifice my life for the Jew to put an end to all their sacrifice. I'm going to sacrifice my life for the Gentiles. My flesh will be nailed to a cross. My blood will be poured out for the forgiveness of their sins. And I will die as this innocent sacrifice. So by grace, any and all of them can have peace with God. So that's the means. And that's why he's talking about blood and flesh and cross. And let us not forget that when we go to the Lord's table in a few minutes at the end of this service that when we drink this cup, when we eat this bread, these are tokens of the means by which we have a right relationship with God. So what a privilege every week to take these and ingest them and say, this is my hope, that Jesus, my Redeemer, through his sacrifice, made me right with God. So that's the means. But the method, I said, is not the agent or the instrument that accomplishes, but it's like the process or the procedure that that person went through to give you peace. And I want you to notice in these next verses, Paul says Jesus broke something, Jesus abolished something, and Jesus created something new. Okay, I said Jesus broke something. Look at verse 14. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And I'll take you for a moment back to that picture of the, the physical tabernacle or temple. And when the temple was finally in Jerusalem, you know, it's first Solomon's temple and then Herod's temple, the literal design and layout of that temple was that there were this series of courtyards outside the temple. And it's like, okay, if you're a priest, you can go this far. If you're a common Jewish man, you can go this far. If you're a common Jewish woman, you can go this far. If you're a Gentile, you're way out here. 
And there were literally these series of walls that's like, you can only go past this wall if this describes you. And so there's this court of Gentiles, like physically removed from the temple, physically removed from the worship of Yahweh. And historians tell us that periodic intervals on the outside of that six foot high wall was carved in the stone, this saying, no foreigner may enter within the barricade, which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Welcome to Jerusalem, you know. And something that separated even the Jews themselves from God in his presence was that veil. That only the high priest and only one time a year and only with blood sacrifice could he enter into the most holy place. So everyone was separated by these walls and curtains and barriers. And the idea here is what did Jesus break? Literally, like what did he destroy? The walls that separated us from God. And you all know from experience that when we sin against someone or they sin against us, there's a wall, right? There's, there's a barrier, maybe a series of barriers. Like you're hurt, they're hurt. And like, it, it's not a physical thing, although there's certainly been quibbles like the Hatfields and McCoys literally built walls and fences. It was like, this is our land. And they're like, no, it's not. And we'll break it down and we'll move it over here. And they'll break it down and move it back over here. But we're over here, you're over there, and we're, we're not going to mix. We're not going to do life together. And so Paul may have been speaking of this literal series of walls and curtains at the temple. But since the Gentiles in Ephesus may not have known about that, he's at least speaking metaphorically of these barriers that, that through our sins, through our trespasses, through our failures and mistakes, we are, we are building a separation between us and God. So do you see why Jesus might want to come and break some stuff during his earthly ministry and through the gospel? Because he's like, you will, you will never be able to climb over that wall. You'll never be able to tunnel under that wall. Your sin separates us. So I've come to tear the wall down. And you know, when Jesus died, if you know scripture, it's like the moment that he's like, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and he dies. The Bible says from top to bottom that veil in the temple is torn in two, and a way is opened up. There are no more barriers to come to God through Christ. So Jesus broke something. Number two, I said Jesus abolished something. Look at this, verse 15. He abolished the law of commandments and ordinances. Okay, what's, what's that? Well, we know from Jesus' own testimony, like the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day are like, uh, Jesus is partying with sinners. So he's come to abolish the law, the Torah, the law of Moses. And Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So unless there's a contradiction here between what Jesus actually said and what Jesus did, we need to go into this for a minute, okay? Um, it's important to distinguish between the moral law in the Old Testament and the ceremonial or the civil law. So the moral law is things like everyone knows the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You know, you shall not make a graven image. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. And then there's six of these commands that, that govern our relationships interpersonally. Like don't kill people. Don't steal from people. Don't bear false witness. Don't commit adultery. Then there's the ceremonial or civil law that's not these timeless commands for all people because we're made in the image of God, but it's stuff like these feast days and dietary laws. Like, like I know you want to eat those crustaceans, but you just really can't because you're a Jew. 
or you want to eat that pork barbecue, but you can't because you're a Jew. Now we know, so two things here. What does it mean that Jesus abolished the law of commandments and ordinances? Two things. One, we know from the record of Acts 10 that Jesus did abolish that ceremonial law. He did. And you might remember this, this dream that the apostle has, Peter, and it's like this curtain comes down, it's filled with animals, and some of them are clean animals, meaning they could eat them, and some of them are unclean animals, meaning they could not eat them as a Jew. And God says, you know, rise, kill, and eat. And he's like, not so, Lord, not going to do it. This is a trick. And we know from this interplay between God and Peter, God is saying, Peter, if I say something that was formerly unclean is clean, don't you dare continue to call it unclean. Rise, kill, and eat. And he finds out later, because these Gentiles come to him and they're like, we're, we're seeking the Messiah. He's like, oh, the ceremonial law about the unclean and the clean really wasn't about the animals. It was about people. Because the Jews would sit here and say, Gentiles are unsavable because they're unclean. They're filthy people. They're not part of the covenant people of God. So when Jesus abolishes the ceremonial law, he's abolishing a whole bunch of specific regulations that separate Jews and Gentiles for all time. And he says, we're not going to continue to have festivals and feasts and dietary restrictions and all these things around all kinds of things. If you read Leviticus, it's, it's some heavy treading, right? You feel like you're slogging through a bog of rules. He's like, that is no more because it separates you. But a second way that Jesus abolished the law was actually by fulfilling the moral law. So when people are like, okay, I'll worship you and I'll not take your name in vain and I'll remember the Sabbath day and I won't kill and I won't steal and I won't lie and I won't cheat on my spouse. There, can I be saved? And God's like, no, because you really think you haven't had other gods before me or beside me? Like Our hearts are idol factories. And so Jesus comes and he fulfills the moral law. He keeps it perfectly, not, not just for himself, but as a gift to us that he can credit his obedience to our account. And this is so important. Jesus abolished the moral law, hear me, not as a standard of right ethics or conduct, he abolished the moral law as a means of salvation. It is no more. We are saved only by grace through faith. John Stott says it this way, Jesus abolished both the regulations of the ceremonial law and the condemnation of the moral law. Both were divisive. Both were put aside by the cross. Okay, Jesus broke something. He abolished something. I said Jesus created something new. Verse 15 again Jesus breaks something and abolishes something that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And I think we understand that one new man is not a person. It's not an individual. The point is you used to have Jew, that mankind. You used to have Gentile, that mankind. And his point is now in Jesus, I have made an entirely new mankind. And this mankind is not some weird 50-50 hybrid between a Jew and a Gentile. But I think this is important too. That because Jesus has just created a new mankind. When these Gentiles are coming to Christ and the Jews are like, huh, whoa, whoa, hold on. And you 
Like you caught this weird thing at the beginning, which is awkward for pastors to talk about because he's like circumcision and uncircumcision. And we're like, you know, I don't like, no, thank you. Not in church. Okay. Um, What some of the Jews were saying is like, hold, hold, hold on. Like before you become a Christian, you got to circumcise your boys and you got to start obeying these laws and having these feasts. And they're imposing the ceremonial law on them. And this is so important that what, what Jesus is saying and now what Paul is writing to them is because he's created one new humanity that's neither Jew nor Gentile, but it's something completely new. He's like, no, Gentiles, you do not first have to become Jews to become a Christian. And, and by the same token, the Jews don't have to become Greeks or, or accept Gentile traditions to become a Christian. We just follow Jesus to become a Christian. So he's like, are you a Jew or a Gentile? You're reconciled into one new humanity. And I would say to to our culture today, are you black or white? You're reconciled into one new humanity. Are you rich or poor, blue collar, white collar? We got elections coming up in a couple days. You're Republican, you're Democrat. You are reconciled into one new humanity by the same means and by the same method. It's through the blood of Christ. It's through him doing this work for you. It's through him that we all have access to one father by one spirit. And so you see that God's doing something way bigger than just saving individuals to go to heaven when they die. He's like, I'm creating a new and reconciled humanity. There is a community of people in the world, in all places of the world, or or many, that you are this new humanity in Christ. Now, what does that look like? And this is the third point. Who are we in Christ? Verses 19 through 22. And I'll be quick with these because I just, like, we, we could do a whole sermon on these three metaphors But what I want you to notice is just an increasing sense of that nearness and belonging. I said, Jesus, the reconciliation is overcoming distance and separation with nearness and belonging. Look at these metaphors now. And I want you to see, first of all, negatively, he's saying to the Gentiles, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You're no longer outsiders. You're no longer excluded. You're no longer even marginalized. You are loved and accepted as First of all, fellow citizens with all the saints, Gentile or Jew. And what he's saying is your primary citizenship is no longer, I'm a member of the kingdom of Israel or I'm a member of the Roman Empire. That's where my citizenship. He's like, you you have a new citizenship in Christ that transcends and supersedes whatever that earthly citizenship is. And it doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter what your background sins are or your history or your bloodline. None of that matters. You're all fellow citizens with all the saints. And again, I would say to believers today, your primary identity is not black or white, Jew or Gentile or any other thing. You are primarily identified as a citizen of God's kingdom. I don't know if some of you aren't old enough. Many of you aren't old enough, but... For those who are, and if you're not, go look this up on YouTube, as I did this morning. Right after 9-11, there was, uh, it was a public service announcement um, that was made by the Ad Council. And it was a minute and six seconds of just a plethora of different people with all different kinds of dress and custom and obviously different ethnicities, gender, children, old, everything in between, just looking in the camera and saying, I'm an American. I'm an American. I'm an American. I'm an American. And it was a powerful advertisement of like 
all these things that could have separated us. You know what? When someone attacks your country, you, you, some of you remember that moment. Like you set aside a lot of differences and you just weep together and you rebuild together and you're like, we're Americans. That, that's part of what Jesus is saying. Like that kind of feeling is like, I am a citizen of God's heavenly kingdom by grace. And so are you. And so are you. And so it doesn't matter how different we look. We are citizens of the same kingdom. So we have the same privileges, the same responsibilities, and the same rights in Christ. Now he gets a little bit more intimate. Second metaphor. Not only are you fellow citizens with the saints, but you are members of God's family. We're brothers and sisters. We have one father. Like that, that's it. You, you want to be a part of the family of God. We have one elder brother, Jesus Christ. We're adopted into his family, but not like that illustration I shared earlier where you're sitting around the table and it's like, well, you're bi my biological kid, so you get the blood. The incredible thing is like in a sense, and don't stretch this because God is forever eternally Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. But it's like if you were to say he had a biological relationship, it would only be with Jesus. All the rest of us are adopted. But he actually does the opposite of the illustration I shared earlier, where it's not like, well, Jesus gets everything because you're adopted. Good luck, but welcome to the family. No, he says the opposite. He says, because the biological son, the forever eternal king son, won this for you through his blood, it's all of yours. So you get the, you get the rights and responsibilities. You get the inheritance. You get everything that Jesus earned. And again, your background doesn't matter. We are members of God's family. And then it gets even closer together. We are living stones of one new temple. And this is an incredible metaphor because it means God is not just with us as a king or even as a father, but is actually present within us. The church has replaced the physical temple in Jerusalem as the locus of God's presence. That's an incredible thing. He says that the spirit of God dwells in you collectively because of the work of Jesus. And he says, Christ Jesus himself is the, is the cornerstone of that temple. And they, they probably, as they're reading this, they could have looked over on that hill and seen that temple of Artemis, you know, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world and seen foundation stones that were as big as boxcars. And been like, yeah, his foundation stones are important. Well, he's like, that, that cornerstone is the first one. And it's chiseled out with exact right angles on every side. Because it sets the stability. It sets the direction of the entire structure that's built on top of it. And that's what he says, Jesus is that cornerstone. You want to you wanna be a part of this family? You want to be a part of this temple? Literally like stones cemented together? It's about Jesus. Now let me just close with two quick but I think important applications of this for daily life. Number one, we need to recognize the basis of our unity. Okay, God has brought us near and made us belong. But what is the basis of that unity? Paul isn't selling anything here. And I think the world very often is selling, they're peddling a false unity where it's like, it's not real unity. You know this tolerance. You know, it's like just approve of and accept everything that everyone around you is doing and, and we'll be unified. It'll all be fine. We'll be together because, because we'll just live and let live. And you all are smart enough to know that doesn't really work. 
That, that is not real unity. You can be like, okay, fine. Like, you do your thing, I'll leave you alone. You do your thing and I'll leave you alone is not unity. It's you do your thing and I'll leave you alone. What Paul is calling us as followers of Jesus to is something so much more unified and intimate and belonging than that. And what he clearly says here is the basis of our unity is the gospel. It is the person and work of Jesus. He's the foundation. He's the cornerstone. He says, and built on top of that is the word of the apostles and the prophets. So he's talking about especially the New Testament. So our strength and our dependence dependability, our stability are based on building our lives on the person and work of Jesus and his word. And that's why, like, as a church, we, we're still just committed to, like, Jesus is where it's at. Jesus is our center. We're going to teach straight out of the word of God, and we're not going to shift it around just because culture has new and different ideas than what they had five seconds ago. There's a stability. There's a safety to building on the foundation of Jesus. This is the basis for our unity. So, so positively, you, you may say, man, there's this person I just cannot get along with. Well, are they a follower of Jesus? Yes, but I, just, I can't stand her. And it's like, well, you need to figure it out. Because if she's following the gospel and Christ has accepted her and you're following the gospel and Christ has accepted you, how are you distanced from someone that Jesus isn't distanced from? Which is kind of this second application point that not only do we need to recognize the basis for our unity, but we have to strive out to live, strive to live out the reality of our reconciliation. And just think this morning, who are you at odds with right now? Like a person or a group of people and I just want to point out, if, if they are a believer, God has taken steps to reconcile that person to himself. He's removed barriers. He's abolished the law for them as a means of coming to him. So your walls need to come down. And I realize, because I have some of these relationships in my life too, reconciliation is a, a two-way street. Like, you can be tearing down the wall and being like, you hurt me, but by God's grace, I forgive. And I'm tearing down this wall that divides us. And they might be sitting there with the pile of bricks you're making and just like they got fresh mortar and they're going at it. There's, there's, they want to build the barrier. So you can't make reconciliation happen on your own. But I'm saying if, if there's an animosity in your heart, you've got to put it away for Jesus' sake. Forgive. Stop rebuilding walls that Jesus tore down at the cost of his life. So that's a personal application. I also want to just apply this quickly corporately. Like we need to live out reconciliation corporately. And what I mean by that is um, our, our world has weaponized race, gender, uh, ageism, elitism, class warfare, all these kinds of, we've polarized over all these differences, which we're, we, just, we magnify the difference. And, and I'll just say, like, there is no place for racism, ageism, elitism, sexism, any of that in the church of Jesus Christ. It, it should not exist. It cannot exist. Because what we have to do is look at that other person, that other 
tribe, that their group that looks and thinks and acts a little differently and say, if, if Jesus has reconciled them to the Father and I am reconciled to the Father, and, and there's this kind of this triangle thing going on, is like the, the more in tune with God I am, the more fellowshipping with God I am, the more at peace with God I am, like subjectively, experientially, because we are at peace with God, I should be getting closer and closer to these people that have hurt me deeply and, and having no place for sexism or ageism or racism or anything like that. Um, yeah, just, I mean, there, there's a thousand applications there. I would, there's no place for jokes. There's no place for looking down on another person or group of people and thinking I'm superior to you. I've always, I've always felt that way. Um, there's also no place, I said, our world has weaponized race. So we do this other thing, which is also defying the reconciliation which you have in Christ, which is knowing what a weapon race is Church people falsely accuse other people of being racist or elitist as a way of dismissing them and, and kicking them out, which, which you're right back to destroying the peace that Jesus made. And society has all these solutions that are like, we'll, we'll force you know, political correctness on everyone and we'll cancel people that don't agree and it just will never work. You, you cannot reconcile enemies by guilting and shaming and blaming and forcing people into a right relationship. The only solution to our enmity and hostility, even on a horizontal level, is I am loved and accepted in Christ. You are loved and accepted in Christ. We have massive differences, but for Jesus' sake, we will choose to work through them humbly, graciously, tenaciously, so that we can accept and live at peace with everyone that God has reconciled to himself. So again, this main theme, the cross puts an end to our hostility with God and with one another and makes us a whole new humanity in Christ. May we live out that theme because I think one of the greatest testimonies to our broken, polarized culture would be if they could actually look at the church and be like, they've somehow figured it out. Maybe not perfectly. But, but look, at, look at the people streaming in there every Sunday morning. And look at what they're doing for others who are different for, from them. And look at how they love and sacrifice for each other when uh, those people hated each other. But now they love each other. Something's going on there. And you're talking about an apologetic to the power of the gospel. It would be if believers lived at peace with God and with each other. Let's pray.